And uh, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, and we'll be reading the first 12 verses of this chapter. Luke chapter 24 from verse 1 to 12. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And as it happened, they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again? And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna... Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, stooping low, to, or stooping down. He saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, as we turn our hearts and minds to studying this portion of Luke's gospel this morning. We pray that you would grant us the understanding that we seek and desire, that we would not be bored from a passage that we have perhaps read many, many, many times, from a narrative that we are well familiar with, that, Lord God, may we be excited by what we see in your word this morning. May we be encouraged by it and may we be reinvigorated by the certain hope we have because our, our Lord is risen. Let's uh, amen. All right, so before we get properly into this, I want to talk first about some of the events that led up to this. And I think if we're going to talk about the events that happened on that Friday 2,000 years ago, 2,000 odd years ago, I think the word sacrifice comes to mind. Sacrifice. But I think in saying the word sacrifice, it's become one of those words that has become pretty diluted in the way in which we use it. We see words become diluted over time. We can see words used in a context that diminishes their meaning. This is a great time of year where we hear people say, I love chocolate. Do you love chocolate the way you love your husband or your wife or your mum and your dad or your brothers and sisters? No, you don't. I hope you don't. It should be a much less thing, but we use the same word and sacrifice is often used in the same sort of way. If we look at what people tell us it takes to succeed in life, they will tell you that you have to sacrifice. Now, a few years ago when Anna and I were looking at buying a house, we were reminded of that, um, that hit piece that it's been described as it was in newspapers a few years ago. That young people, if they want to buy a house, have to sacrifice their smashed avo on toast. I got very concerned at that point in time because I didn't eat smashed avo on toast. I still don't. Well, if that's what it takes to own a house, I'm never going to have it. I don't even have that to sacrifice. 
It was a very disheartening moment. Very disheartening. But in work situations, many of us have been in work situations where we've been told if you want to progress further up the company's ranks, what you have to do is you have to sacrifice time with your family on Friday nights and come out for drinks with us. In sport, if you don't sacrifice McDonald's and KFC for a good diet, you won't make it. In music, if you don't sacrifice time with friends and pursuing other hobbies and don't focus solely on your music, you just won't make it. In some ways, all of these things can be considered a a sacrifice, but I think we cheapen the word sacrifice if we overuse it. Again, just like the word love. It's very easy for us to do this, and I want us to be very clear about this, that when we talk about the sacrifice that happened on the Friday of this weekend, 2,000 odd years ago, we are not talking about just eating less toast and avocado. We're not talking about having less junk food. We're not talking about spending less time playing an instrument. We are talking about something far more significant than that. When we look to Christ and remember what happened this weekend all those years ago, we see real and genuine and unimaginably large sacrifice. Again, sometimes when we say we're sacrificing something, what we were really saying is we are just reordering our priorities. If I'm being completely honest, I don't even think giving up smashed over on toast is really a sacrifice. That's just a choice. But what Jesus did, that is true sacrifice. We read from Mark chapter 9. After the transfiguration, Jesus revealing, I think what we could describe as as much of his holiness as he could to fallen humans at that point in time without killing them, Jesus said that he must be handed over and that he would die. What Jesus did in dying on the cross is true sacrifice. He offered up his own life to appease the anger of his heavenly father. Anger that should not have been directed at Christ, but was. Anger at sin. Because God is wrathful towards sin. Now what I'm going to say might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, and I hope it does, God, or Jesus died on the cross to appease God's righteous anger toward not just sin, but sinners. You've probably heard the saying, love the sinner, but hate the sin. I'll put it to you to show me where that comes from in Scripture. Yes, be gracious in our speech and our actions to everyone, but the sinner as well as the sin is wrong in the eyes of God. The unrepentant sinner, as well as their sins, receives the punishment from God. Now that might sound like this sermon just took a sharp left turn because I wanted to have a crack at a phrase that I don't like. But we need to understand what Christ did and what Christ did to save us from ourselves. Jesus had to do this. Jesus had 
to die on the cross because the reality of the fallen human man is that we have a problem. We fell in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve, Adam acting as our federal figurehead, representing all of mankind, chose not obedience to God but chose sin instead, left all of us with a sin problem. All of us have been left since that day unlovely in the sight of God. We all have a problem that needs resolution. And the sin that we have in our lives is not something we can resolve on our own. Every single one of us who is here today has come here today as a broken sinner completely and utterly in need of help with our sin and in need of healing from its destructive effects in our lives. The means by which the resolution for sin that we desperately needed was Jesus. We need to wrap our heads around something here. When we look at the horror Christ went through, we cannot reduce the events of the Easter weekend to a light and fluffy story. This is deeply challenging and deeply confronting for every single one of us. Our sin was dealt with by Christ as he was being publicly humiliated, beaten by soldiers, had a crown of thorns pushed down on his head, had his back scourged with a whip that would have done unimaginable damage. He was stripped naked and left nailed on a cross. Let's not cheapen what Christ did. Let's see it for what it is. This was sacrifice. This was a sacrifice made not because Christ himself had made bad decisions and this is how he could get himself back on track. This was a sacrifice made because our sin made us completely unlovely before God and yet God still loved us enough to do this for us. This is what we remember on the Friday of this weekend every single year that there is a price to be paid for sin. And while it's a horrible price, and it's horrifically wrong in terms of justice that Christ, the innocent, spotless Lamb of God, would pay that for us, we look back on Friday and see it as a good day because the price was indeed paid. And then we come to Sunday. Now the first day of the week. The Lord's Day, as we hear it called in Revelation 1.10. And this is a day of the week, the Lord's day, because this is the day that Christ rose from the grave. It's important that we covered some of the background of the, the death of Christ because he had to die. We need to understand why he had to die because of our contribution to that. And we also need to see that he died to understand more and be reminded more of his resurrection. Every Sunday, we remember this. This is why Christians meet on Sundays. 
It's also wonderful to take time out to remember this today. So in Luke's Gospel, that we read this morning, it was on the first day of the week that they, the, the ladies, were heading off to the tomb in which Jesus Christ had been laid to anoint his body with spices. Wrap your heads around that for a little bit. Because for us today, we know what they're about to know, that Christ is risen. But at this point in time, these ladies did not know that yet. They are going to honour the body of their now dead friend who they know did no wrong. Normally, the spices would be put on the body sooner. But Jesus' death just before the Sabbath began, this was their first real chance to honour him in such a way. What Luke depicts for us here is a group of ladies coming to, to pay their final respects to a dear loved one who has passed away. Again, we, we now know this to be a day of rejoicing. But at this point in time for these ladies, I can assure you there would have been very, very little to be joyful about in their hearts. They're going to the tomb of their friend who has died. Grief would be what they were feeling. And that grief would likely have been added to as they come to the tomb and the site that meets them there, this massive stone which was sunk into the earth to secure it, to make sure it couldn't be rolled away, is gone. I'm sure at this point in time they're probably thinking something along the lines of, isn't it bad enough that they've killed him? Now they have to move his body, remove our chance to mourn, remove our chance to grieve, remove our chance to honour him. This would have been a horrific sight to see. Uh, Luke describes it for us here as they went in, they saw his body wasn't there and, and they were greatly perplexed. I think greatly perplexed, if that was me, would be doing well. And this is where things take a turn for the better. See, we know why Jesus wasn't there, but then they have people appear to them. What's been one of the most horrible weekends ever, the most horrific weekend ever, suddenly starts turning around to be the greatest weekend ever. Two men appear before the ladies in shining clothes. And just like most times when we see angels appear, there is a, a response of fear. Grief, perplexion, I think perplexion is a word, I'm sticking with it. Now fear, and then good news, the best news, he's not here. Ladies, th this is a grave. This is a grave. Why are you looking for him among the dead? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Of course you won't find him here. Don't you remember what Jesus himself said to you? Maybe you weren't there for all of them, but surely for one of those at least three times when Christ explicitly stated that he would die and on the third day be raised back to life. He was telling you the truth. He was not filling you with false hope. The reality is that he is 
risen. All of the horrible things that he endured. He endured to fulfill, to fulfill scripture, but now he is alive. And you can just see what a turning point this would be. What a moment. What a day. A grief that has now not only been reduced, not only softened in the blow of this grief, has been completely reversed, but a wonderful joy. They're the first ones to hear it too. So these ladies, they know what to do with this news. They go to the other disciples. They take the news with them to the other disciples. Now it's been commented often, I know I've said this and I've said it because I've heard other credible sources say this, it's not my thought. I think it's a good one though. It's been commented often that if gospel writers were, were making up the story of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, Luke chapter 24 would feature a bunch of fellas. The word of men was more trusted than the word of women we see the response of the disciples. Verse 11. And their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. They can be dismissed straight away. If the gospel writers were making this up, this wouldn't be women hearing this news first and women taking the news to the other disciples. This would be men. They would have changed it if this was a dishonest account. But this is an honest account of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. I'm sure lots of people who read this in the first century and heard of this in the first century likely would have doubted the validity of this and seen it just as being an idle tale, just like the disciples, for no other reason than the fact that it's these ladies who heard the news first. Even the eleven, Judas has hanged himself by this stage, but the eleven of the twelve apostles who are there, have serious doubts. No, it can't be. It can't be. This couldn't be true. There is no way this could happen. We were there. Yeah, we, maybe we scattered a little bit soon. But we know this guy died. He, he's not risen. He's in the tomb. There are Roman soldiers guarding him. We know that this is the end. This is an idle tale. And if we're honest with ourselves, part of the doubt is just how incredible it is that Jesus did come back from the dead. And part of the doubt would have been because of the, the messengers being ladies. But not all of them just considered idle tales. Some of them go and investigate. Peter and John's gospel tells us John as well. John's a very fast runner. They, they get up and they go. Peter here is the one Luke records is going, goes to the tomb. And when he gets there, we read at the very end of verse 12, he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. For Peter to marvel at what had happened, we begin to get a glimpse. Luke's giving us a glimpse here that Peter is insight to these things is starting to click. He's starting to get it. Jesus really is alive. Now, there's going to be another conversation that Jesus, uh, that Peter has with the risen Jesus where things solidify, absolutely. But he's starting to get it. He's marveling at how wonderful this could be. He's not walking away perplexed. He's walking away 
marvelling. It's a, a notable comment there that there's perplexion when the ladies see, with no context, the empty tomb. Peter, with the context of the message that he has risen, comes away marvelling. The different responses Luke gives us here should be noted. He's starting to get it. He's starting to get it. Now, this morning I was very tempted to read through to verse 27. I realised if I read to verse 27, we might as well just read the whole chapter. Then I'd be preaching on the whole thing and it would have been a very, very, very long sermon. So I did show self-control, which you can thank me for later. I stopped at verse 12. If you do cast your eye forwards just a little bit from verse 13 onwards, we begin to get a series of Jesus' appearances before eyewitnesses. And the rest of this chapter of Luke and every account of these eyewitnesses, as well as the fact that these ladies have received this news, is something very, very important for us to remember when it comes to what we do with this account. See, we're not just giving this and we go, what a lovely story, let's go have some Easter eggs. We've been given this, we might know that Jesus is the Son of God, that we might know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that we might know that we have hope and a sure hope because he was raised back from the dead. And then we have credible eyewitnesses. I saw a video this week of a a fellow evangelizing in some street somewhere. And a lady was getting very upset that this guy would say that Jesus was risen. She was very, very upset, very, very angry. And her response was that she would believe in Jesus' resurrection if this evangelist on the streets could show her Jesus' medical charts. That's what it's going to take for me to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. I need to see his medical charts. So I started to respond, well, I'm not going to show you his medical charts. They weren't there. And he says, what a convenient thing for you to say. His response was, you want to talk about convenience. What a convenient thing to ask for. Jesus' medical charts, if you've already decided you just don't want to believe. There were no medical charts at the time. Historical proofs of people existing and events happening comes from credible eyewitnesses. We will not find medical charts for any of the Caesars. We will not find medical charts for Plato or Aristotle, for any of the kings or queens or admirals or generals who have ever gone before us in history but by the validity of credible eyewitness accounts, we can know that those people were real and the events that they did, did happen. This is what we have here in Luke's Gospel. We have credible eyewitness accounts of our risen Lord. This is for us to believe and to be encouraged and to have hope and to hold out hope to the people around us. And if we're struggling that, by, by what measure will you deny this? There are no historical accounts. There are no historical proofs to counter the claims put forward in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So other than our pure arrogance, thinking we know better than those who are actually there at the time, by what measure 
where we deny that the resurrection actually happened. There is no other way we can do it than to say we know better. We weren't there, but we know better. We don't even need to go back far in history to see how disappointing that sort of attitude can be. I'm sure we've all seen the effects of gossip. People who weren't present for things happening will tell you exactly how it happened. What they sometimes don't know is that you were in the room. And what they're describing with absolute certainty is happening looks nothing like what you experienced in the actual time. But they've made their minds up, this is what happened. It's bad enough when we do that with events that happen on a day-to-day basis. Frankly, we look silly when we do that. But how much worse would it be to do that with Christ? you look silly in the situations where you decide without being present you know exactly what happened how much worse will you look when you have to stand before God and give an account the way Luke has written this way every gospel writer has written about the life death and resurrection of Jesus leaves us with two choices One, and my hope and prayer is this is not the one that you choose. Just to reject the truth. And the arrogance and the hardness of our hearts to say, no, I know better. That's not what happened. I'm not going to believe that. I wasn't there. They're credible eyewitnesses. We have no reason to doubt anything here. There are no historical proofs to counter what these gospel writers have worked hard to record for us. Or, or believe with all that you have that Jesus is risen, that he lived, that he died, and that he provided through an unimaginably enormous sacrifice the means to resolve the sin problem we all have. what are we going to do I can encourage you to believe for the end of the day that's between you and God you can have the uncertainty of rejecting this and looking for something else to solve our problems or we can have hope and security in the one who Luke tells us about our risen Lord and Saviour let's pray Lord God, we thank you for this incredible account from Luke's gospel. We rejoice that you, our Lord and Saviour, are indeed risen. We thank you for the hope that this gives us. We thank you for the confidence that this gives us to live your way. 
We thank you that you, our God, have power over sin and death, that we do not live bound to sin anymore, but that we have freedom because of what Christ sacrificed on that cruel and horrible cross in our place. So, Lord God, grow our joy, grow our assurance, grow our confidence, and may we love you and demonstrate our love for you more and more every day. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.